Hello and welcome to TOPS 10, brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. TOPS 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and asks them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them that tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer-engineer. I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the college and the originator and sometimes host of TOPS 10. Today I have with me a fellow colleague from Texas Tech, Dr. Mark Webb, a professor and chair of the philosophy department. Mark got his PhD from Syracuse University and his MA and BA from Texas Tech. He specializes in epistemology. Now, Mark, epistemology is one of those words like hermeneutics that, that <laughs> I think people say, yep, I'm a specialist in this. Yeah, it's a good word to empty a room with. Uh, it just means theory of knowledge. So it's questions about what knowledge is and what constitutes knowledge and what kinds of evidence uh, constitute justified belief and that sort of thing. And the philosophy of religion. He's currently working in the epistemology of religious experience, especially as it applies to non-Western religious experiences. Professor Webb's articles have appeared in the Journal of Philosophy, Pacific Philosophical Quarterly, Religious Studies, the International Journal for Philosophy of Religion, and Hypatia, and the most recently, an eliminativist theory of religion in Sophia. I've got to ask you, what is an, an eliminativist theory? <laughs> I, I, you know, I actually that's another like, terrible. Word. I can I can actually speak English, but I, I, somehow when I look at these words, I go like, "Wow, did you did you make up that word?" No, no, those those words are not English, though. Uh, eliminativist, I can't even say it very well. Comes from uh, uh, it's a theory in philosophy of mind that uh, mental events can be completely reduced to physical brain events, so you don't even have to talk about minds ultimately. And so when I say that about religion, I'm sort of getting rid of the category of religion in favor of something more basic. I'm saying that the category of religion doesn't really capture anything essential. It's kind of a bogus thing we've grouped together. Mark, I want to ask you a serious question. Uh, the field of philosophy, I wouldn't say it's under attack, but it's undergoing a, a period of redefinition, and maybe I guess you're engaged in that redefinition. Somewhat, uh, yeah. Richard Dawkins, among some others, have you know dismissed and said, you know, we don't need philosophers anymore. We're done f- with philosophy. You know, check uh, there. Uh, what is your argument to, to somebody in the elevator or maybe your son's school friends that, yeah, we still need philosophers in our society? Oh, boy. I don't know if I have a... A good answer for that. Um, I know that you know philosophy has been, ever since the sciences came to be, philosophy has been charged to be frivolous or unnecessary. They want to say, well, look, don't we get everything we want from physics and psychology? Uh, and you know, Sam Harris, one of the new, so-called new atheists, uh, wrote that book called Something About Morality and Evolutionary Theory, and he he claims that we can account for morality completely in terms of evolution evolutionary psychology, so we don't need philosophy to talk about that. But all the philosophers that have read the book say, look, dude, you assumed from the very beginning that the flourishing of the human species is a good thing. Where did you get that from evolutionary psychology, right? What fundamentally is good, nobody touches that but philosophy. Psychology can't tell us. Psychology can tell us what we prefer, but it can't tell us whether our preferences are right. The first song you listed with us was a religious song, Abide With Me, the old hymn. And you said that uh, among your earliest memories of, my, of your mother singing in church? 
Yeah, yeah. And a lot of our guests talk about hearing music for the first time in the house with their parents singing or in uh, church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my mother was uh, the only religious person in the household, really, and she kept uh, trying very hard to get us kids to go to church. And my older sister and older brother were confirmed in the Episcopalian Church, and I never made it that far. But she kept, as long as she could, bringing me to church with her. And uh, and I've been, you know, I've been a Christian off and on since then. I'm off right now. But that hymn is sung in every denomination. And it really touches me. It really appeals to me uh, because I have a problem with church music in general. Hymns tend to be either sort of triumphant or smug or didactic and scolding, and I just I can't identify with any of those. But this one is just about sort of feeling helpless and uh, needing the guidance of God to get through the day. And that's a religious feeling that I still have. Even if I don't have religious beliefs, I still have that feeling. So that hymn still speaks to me. It drives my wife crazy because she thinks it's terrible music. And maybe it is. I don't know. Now that song asks for help. It asks you said to get through the day. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's something innate in humans, wherever it comes from, that it's almost impossible for us for, for us to be mentally alone? Yeah, I think there's something right about that. I mean, um, I, I don't know if I would make the universal claim, but uh, I think that's often what happens. That you know you. Uh, even people that, that want to be isolated sort of make excuses for getting back in the company of other people. And now, of course, you know, we have the radio. When I was uh, teaching in Seville the first time and I didn't know anybody, and my first weekend there, I was sort of stuck in my apartment not knowing what to do, I found uh, radio streaming on the Internet, and that made everything better. It was KOHM, I'm sorry to say, not KTXT, but, you know, next time I'll know. But it was um, an insight that I had early on, I guess I shouldn't say I had it, it was given to me by some of my advisors, that even for such simple things as language and knowledge, you have to have a social group to begin with. You can't have, well, you can have very basic kinds of knowledge on your own, but most of the stuff we think we know, we only know because we rely on other people. 
know, history books are just somebody else's story, and we're listening to it and we're believing it. Uh, maps are somebody else's drawing, and we believe there's, you know, I've never been to Australia, but I believe it's there. <laughs> so uh, that's social epistemology, and that sort of got me thinking about these things, and it fits You're right into those religion. Big words again. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and religion is a, is a sort of uh, manifestation of that, I think, of the sort of group impulse and the need to be with others and have, have a community that has its own rules and standards. And uh, they have their own way of um, judging things, their own practices, their own ways of interacting, their own rituals. When you were growing up, did you ask such big questions? Did you discuss such big questions? I mean, I, I, again, you sort of wonder, like, how does, at what point does a kid say, I'm going to be a philosopher when I, when I grow up? Yeah. When, when did that kick in? Was it college? Uh, well, no, I think it was about the middle of high school, actually. Uh, and I kind of had the disposition all along. Um, my mother used to say, you ought to be a lawyer. So now I tell students, if your mother says you ought to be a lawyer, you ought to be a philosopher. Because it means you're questioning stuff and arguing about stuff and not taking authority as the as the answer. But with me, it happened, uh, you know, when I was 16 um, in high school, I just wandered into a bookstore while I was waiting for a train and bought some books off the shelf that looked interesting with Nietzsche and Plato and Descartes. And I took them home and read them. And it's like I had found my my people. This is my tribe. They're doing the same things that I naturally do. I didn't know it was called philosophy until I got to college. I'd never heard of philosophy. Speaking of tribes, one of the songs you've listed is the Sky Boat Song, sung by many people, but the Celtic Sirens uh, you recommended to us, and a Scottish traditional song. Now, do you have any view on why some cultures may take up certain expressions more than others? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I guess I think, uh, you know, the the, uh, the Celtic nations were generally not literate until probably the late Roman period. I'm not sure about that. Somebody can correct me on that. But uh, if you're not, if you don't have a written language, then all you've got is oral tradition and poetry becomes a natural way to memorize and remember things. And so you get these long epics and sagas and things. I think singing may be one of the oldest human behaviors, in fact. Uh, it seems like a sort of natural thing, uh, you know, to soothe a child or to pass the time around the campfire or, or whatever. Now, you said that my mother sang it to me, and I sang it to my son. Yeah. Uh, my mother was, uh, was Scottish. She was born in Glasgow, and her family immigrated to the States when she was 14. And that song, even though it's the song about the aftermath of a huge, terrible battle, <laughs> has become a sort of standard lullaby that, that Scots and others sing to their children. And uh, that's another one of my very early memories, my mother singing that to me. And when my son was a baby, I sang it to him, and I've sung it to every baby niece and nephew I've ever had. Speed, bonny boat, like a bird on the wing, on what the sailors cry. Sky. 
So when you went to college, uh, you were at Texas Tech. Mm-hmm. Now, did you grow up in the Texas? Yeah, I grew up in Houston mostly. Yeah, My yeah. family traveled a lot, but Houston was home base. And when you came to Tech, you had the intention of majoring in classical studies? And no, actually. Uh, see, that's, this is one of the signs that I didn't know what I was doing. When I came here in 1975, I was a physics major. I was trying to decide in high school between physics and linguistics because uh, I was fascinated by both language and this idea of trying to uncover the very basic nature of things. I didn't see a connection in them at the time as they're two wildly different disciplines. And when I got here and I actually started studying physics, that's when I realized that's not what I want to do. That's not what Descartes was doing or what Nietzsche was doing or Plato. And I, uh, a friend of a friend was a philosophy major. And that's when I found out, oh, that's the discipline where they do what I want to do. And the two things come together, right? inquiry into the basic nature of things and meaning and, and concepts. Your next song is Without You by Harry Nilsson. And you told me that this doesn't connect to a particular event, but it seemed to me to capture something about heartbreak in a really simple way. Philosophy, religion, is also a way to understand some of our basic emotions that that sometimes may seem overwhelming at the time. Heartbreak is certainly one of them. Yeah, this song came out in 1970-something, so I was in high school at the time. If there's one thing that happens to every teenager, it's getting your heart broken or, you know, longing for someone who who doesn't recognize your existence. And it's really wrenching emotions that, you know, looking back later, you can think, well, th- that was really superficial. But that doesn't mean it wasn't real. And this song, the thing I really love about it is how when he goes into the chorus, um, I can't live if living is without you. It starts out very low and quiet. And then at one point in the song... When he goes to the chorus, he goes up an octave and is wailing. And I thought that's really, that's the two sides of that feeling. The really sort of sad, low, and then also the howling, the pain. And it's a very sort of simple song. No, I can't forget this evening Or your face as you were leaving But I guess that's just the way the story goes You always smile, but in your eyes your sorrow shows Yes, it shows No, I can't forget tomorrow When I think of all my sorrow And I had you there, but then I let you go Now it's only fair that I should let you know Just the way the story goes 
So as you were going through college, uh, there's a particular decision where people say, I'm going to go into graduate school as well. I mean, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and when did you make that? Well, I think as soon as I became a philosophy major, I knew I wanted to do that professionally. And I had actually thought in high school that I wanted to be a college professor. I just thought it was going to be physics or linguistics. I wanted to be a specialist who delved really deeply into something and who taught others at that sort of that high level. I don't know if I've made that high level yet at the age of 56, but uh, I've certainly done the research. Now, you, you play an instrument, right? You play, I do. I play, play guitar, yeah. That's right. And classical guitar. Yeah, well, I, I'm still working on that. I just bought a classical guitar in Spain last summer. I can play one or two pieces, and I know the sort of general techniques, but I sound terrible. You mentioned that uh, in high school, your, your girlfriend at the time was taking guitar lessons, and uh, you were really amazed at what somebody could do with a guitar that you maybe you hadn't heard yeah. of, uh, before. And, and the song that, uh, that you listed was by the, one of the great classical guitars, the bar, the most famous one for people who are outside of the world of classical guitar, Segovia, and Recuerdos de la Alhambra. Exactly, yeah. That's, um, that's a difficult song to play because it's got this um, technique called a tremolo where you uh, are sort of playing one string constantly with three fingers, pluck, 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 pluck. And, uh, that's the technique I cannot even approximate yet. But my girlfriend was actually taking lessons from Julian Bream, who is like one of the top, say, ten classical guitarists in the world. And so I was sort of, I was like one link away from this really great guitarist. And she taught me to play guitar. I never attained to her skill, never mind Julian Bream's. But, uh, and that piece, it's also got that sort of feeling of longing in it. And uh, of course, Segovia plays and played, sorry, in a, in a very emotional kind of style where he you know, varies the tempo a lot to sort of emphasize different emotional passages. And so that one really, that can still bring a tear to my eye. In fact, not too many years ago, well, I guess it is too many years ago, uh, the movie The Killing Fields came out. And Mike Oldfield, the guy who wrote Tubular Bells that was used in The Exorcist, wrote a transcription of Recuerdos de la Alhambra in like bells and whistles, right? So it sounded like Southeast Asian music and it worked really well. It sounded like gamelan. And so that drove me back to to listen to it again. And I've, I've rediscovered my joy in classical guitar.
your next song, uh, taking a little bit of a turn there, Tom Paxton, Dance in the Shadows. And this is you said this is one of the first you learned to, to play. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't know how to play that anymore? I do you, know how to play right, that okay, one okay, still, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not classical. <laughs> yeah, Tom Paxton is uh, one of the great uh, folk singers of the of the late 60s, early 60s, I think, too. You know, Martin Mull has this joke. You remember that great uh, folk music scare of the late 50s, early 60s? That stuff nearly caught on. <laughs> he was one of the ones that nearly caught on before people returned to, to rock and roll. But this song has got a very, it's in a minor key, and it's got a very sort of gentle tone and rhythm to it. And it's about a man being amazed by his lover, how much he, he has learned from her. Back in the trees, where I learned to say please, where I begged for a taste from the table, she made me know there was need to go slow when she taught me to dance in the shadows where were my hands that were mine to command now they seem to be somewhere in China she brought them back God bless her for that when she taught me to dance in the shadows Oh, she could have laughed at me Oh, she could have left me for dead What did I know less than nothing So I listened and did as she said I heard the moon pass I listened to stars spreading rumors With dawn coming fast I murmured at last She had taught me to dance in the shadows Now, you went on to get an M.A. in philosophy. I did. And you tell me that that was... Not the best period of your life? Mm, it was probably the most stressful. I mean, more stressful than graduate school. That's uh, than the PhD program. That's something. Yeah, what happened then was uh, I was at the time a minister in uh, Church of Christ. You had followed that as a separate path? I mean, you got your... When I Actually, when I was a freshman in college, uh, I sort of had a crisis and... Uh, it resolved itself in my uh, becoming an evangelical Christian, and I eventually became a minister. And while I was a minister, I uh, in college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, did, did you I was sort a, of an assistant was youth it minister. A degree so. or no? How, just the churches. Of, yeah, the churches of Christ don't have uh, seminaries or ordination. Uh, to be ordained is just to be hired by a church. And so I impressed these people well enough that they took me on. And then uh, in the last six years, I had my own congregation. And Did you play the guitar? Were I, you one of those guitar playing? Oh dear, no! In the pastors? churches of Christ, uh, instrumental music is uh, verboten. <laughs> no organs, no pianos, no nothing. So you were doing this in parallel to college? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, studying philosophy of religion and then practicing religion at the same time. <laughs> But well, that's, an inter- that's interesting because, it, you know, I've, I've mm-hmm. heard from people, you know, who are philosophers and people who were pastors that 
those were seen as sort of separate tracks that oh yeah re religion and philosophy were not the same thing they don't uh, yeah they're certainly not the same thing and they don't they're not historically philosophy and religion have not been terribly friendly there have been periods when they've been fellow travelers and you know even now there's a huge uh, community of uh, christian philosophers in the english speaking world and my dissertation director was uh, founding president of the Society for Christian Philosophers. So it can be done. I mean, it can. <laughs> it does mean that you have to, to be sort of intellectually honest. You have to look at your faith critically and look at what you believe with an eye to trying to make it consistent and trying to make it match up with the facts as much as you can. And that that can be hard. Especially if you're working as as a pastor, I mean, I, I'm mm. as I understand it, many of many denominations or any kind of religions they have certain tenets, and you can't get up there and say, you know, I woke up this morning and I read this passage, and I think we've been wrong all along. You know, exactly. and just, we're going to throw this out. And <laughs> well, that's what happened to me actually that during the last three years of that six-year period. Two things were going on, uh, and one of them was. I had decided to work through the Bible a chapter at a time. So Sunday morning we would do something from the New Testament, Sunday night something from the Old Testament, and Wednesday, I forget what we did, but something like that. And I kept running across stuff that I couldn't explain, I couldn't believe, and I would end up standing in the pulpit saying, here's what the story says, but I do not know what to make of it. And if any of you can help me, please help. And I just ended up believing less and less. The more I went through the Bible, now, now the less of it I believed. that's interesting, because you understand how that wouldn't go over well as a, as a uh, philosophy professor either. If you if you got up in front of the student and said, you know, I'm being paid to teach you, but I don't know. I just don't get this stuff. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. You know, you'd have a lot of students going, whoa, time out here. You know, what are well, we paying our tuition for? You well, know? actually, for some stuff you can do that. But it's yeah. true, you got to bring something to the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had... Uh, even philosophical topics where I, I get to the point where I say, hell, I don't know what to make of this. <laughs> but since, uh, you know, we're not teaching conclusions, we're teaching skills, That's that can be okay. Your next song is by Jethro Tull, a, a, a group that, that I grew up with that was always, um, had a reputation as a more mm -hmm. philosophical, thoughtful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, I don't remember at 18 whether that was just the impression because they were British and they sort of <laughs> sang in this sort of halfway between rock and, and medieval, you know, uh, folk ballad lyric, and we thought there was something deeper there, but I, was there something deeper? Yeah, I think so. I mean, even even today, uh, you know, you look at the, the album Aqualung, it's, it's yeah. an extended critique of the way uh, poor and homeless people are treated. Uh, and there's also stuff about religion in there. There's stuff about uh, sort of hypocrisy in religion and... Uh, Especially as it relates to how the poor are treated. I mean, it's not a philosophical thesis, right? But it's uh, uh, it's definitely. I mean, it's not love your baby either. You know, it's it's um, they're thinking about stuff. The song you picked was "Skating Away," and you said that uh, a particular verse there spoke to you at that time in your life. "Quote: Do you ever get the feeling that the story is too damn real and in the present tense?" End quote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was uh, when the various crises in my life came to a head. I broke up with the church, and I broke up with my first wife at the same time. And I was a master's student in philosophy with three other master's students. 
And this is actually, Virginia introduced me to this song. Virginia's my, I don't want to say my current wife. That sounds too provisional. Your pre- your present tense wife. Yes. <laughs> present and future. And she's too damn real, too. Yeah. So, And it sort of, it spoke to something about, I think she knew this, which is why she introduced it to me. I had known Thick as a Brick and Aqualon and stuff, but this was this one I didn't know. And it sort of spoke to that uh, groundless feeling that I had because everything that I had based my life on was coming apart. Once when I was very young, I can't remember exactly when or where, but I saw a cartoon that was a man at the top of a ski jump with skis and ski poles wearing a tuxedo and a top hat. And he says, how the hell did I get here? And that's how I felt all the time in 1985. I found myself in a position, in a situation, and I didn't understand how I got there or what I was supposed to do with it. And uh, that song sort of expressed that that feeling of having the rug pulled out from under you. Meanwhile, back in the year one, when you belonged to no one, you didn't stand a chance, son. If your pants were undone, cause you were bred for humanity and souls. To society One day you'll wake up In the present day A million generations Removed from expectations Of being who you really want to be Skating away Skating away Skating away Nice of a new day. So as you push off from the shore, won't you turn your head once more and make your peace with everyone? But those who choose to stay will live just one more day to do the things they should have done. And as you cross the wilderness uh, Spending in your emptiness You really have to pray Looking for a sign That the universal minds Has written you into the passion play Skating away Skating away Your next song is Five Miles Out by Mike Oldfield, and you talk about your decision to go to a PhD program in this far-off, strange, exotic <laughs> land called Syracuse. Ah, yes. Not not the ancient Greek city where it really would have been interesting to study philosophy, <laughs> but, but in this you know, upstate Greek New city. York. How uh, did you choose Syracuse? This is maybe second year as a master's student. I asked people, you know, how, how should I choose a graduate school? And, and I was given various kinds of advice that made sense. And the thing that made the most sense was, who are you reading? Right? Who's, who's the person whose articles and books are engaging you? 
go study with that person. And William Alston was the one that I was reading, both the stuff in epistemology and stuff in philosophy of religion. And in fact, this is, you know, the arrogance of youth. I was going to go up to Syracuse and set him straight. I mean, I was going to say, look, Bill, you just got this wrong. Um, Jonathan Bennett is a uh, important uh, historian of philosophy had actually come to Texas Tech and given a talk on Spinoza and uh, it was that same year and so he asked me he said I heard you're going to go into a PhD program and you've chosen Syracuse can you tell me why and I started raving about William Alston and Peter Ann Inwagon and I didn't mention Jonathan Bennett it never occurred to me to mention to him that he was a reason I would go to Syracuse and he was a fellow with a bit of a chip on his shoulder Didn't never thought he got the respect he deserved even though he was very famous. Uh, I'm lucky he didn't go back to Syracuse and sort of scotch my admission, <laughs> but um, he let me in and then he punished me while I was there, but that's all right. Five Miles Out by Mike Oldfield. What is this song about? Uh, this is, um, Mike Oldfield is one of my favorite people. Again, it was introduced to me by somebody I knew in the master's program in philosophy. And uh, he's the guy, as I said, that did Tubular Bells, the tune that's famous from the movie The Exorcist. This song is about a guy flying a small aircraft into a storm and he's not clear he's going to make it and there's somebody on the ground in fact it's a woman's voice uh, saying five miles out just hold your heading true that was 1986 I guess I had decided to I almost didn't go to graduate school because I didn't want to be alone I'd never been alone in my life before and Virginia took me by the scruff of the neck and said I'm not going with you you have to do this on your own and if you make it through a year then we'll talk about a permanent relationship but you have to grow a spine basically and that song is about sort of toughing it out and making it and and i did it i had a that was my second most stressful year my first year in syracuse uh, but i made it i learned to be by myself i learned to uh, take care of my own emotional needs and i came back and got virginia and took her to syracuse and the rest is history as they say song steve winwood back in the high life sort That's, of an upbeat song yeah that one's it's starting to get happier <laughs> yeah it sort of surprised me as i was making this list how much of these songs were about my pain <laughs> i thought geez stop whining <laughs> but uh yeah this one's a uh, upbeat and uh, this goes back to the time when i was on the job market uh, my last year 
as a doctoral student, as an ABD. What was, year was this you were in the job market? This was 1990. I st- started. So was the, the job market now for a PhD in philosophy is uh, charitably put as truly awful. Yeah, right? yeah. And yeah, it was yeah. already truly awful then. It's worse yeah. now. But it was, yeah. it was grim. Uh, for three years straight, I would get three interviews, three campus flyouts, no offers. I was uh, I almost gave up at one point. I was actually here at Texas Tech uh, in my third year of a one-year position and no prospects on the horizon. I can remember my first year in Syracuse. In fact, I was early on, the first couple of months there, I didn't have a phone in my apartment yet, so I was going to the lobby of the hotel to make phone calls on a payphone. I guess cell phones didn't exist yet, I don't know. But I was calling my uh, father to uh, basically cry on his shoulder. I don't think I'm gonna make it. I think I'm gonna flunk out. But uh, I ended up speaking to my stepmother one day and she said, well, why don't you just go get a tutor? And I was flabbergasted. I'm, I'm, who do you think the tutors are? The tutors are the PhD students. <laughs> There's nobody that knows this better than me except the professors. So if I'm not getting it from them, I'm not getting it. But, you know, I was I was unnecessarily pessimistic about my chances. Now, you then did get a job. I did. Yeah, uh, yeah it was one of those years when I got three interviews and three flyouts, and I actually got one offer this time. It was from uh, Louisiana something or other, I forget, some very small college in Shreveport. My colleague here, Danny Nathan, he was chair at the time, chair of the philosophy department. He said, look, don't accept that job until I can see if I can get you a counteroffer here. And he got the dean at the time to agree to turn my job tenure track. That was a miracle because like a week later, I got a call from Louisiana State Shreveport or whatever it was saying, I'm sorry, the job fell through. (laughs) And I said, don't tell anybody. Uh, so then I was secure. But this song was our, our uh, you know, eventually we're going to make it kind of song. And now when we hear it, you know, we have to smile and dance a little bit, even if we're in public.
Your next song is Shalon by Carlinhos Brown. Carlinhos. Carlinhos. Yeah. Brazilian pop singer. Uh, certainly we've all been paying attention to Brazil the last, mm-hmm. last couple of weeks with the, the World Cup. This song, you say, is a vision of Brazil in which people of all races, classes, religions get along. It brings a tear to my eye. So completely unrealistic in every way. Then. Absolutely. <laughs> Science fiction. <laughs> yeah, apparently Shalom is how he pronounces Shalom. Uh, yeah, I got into Brazilian pop music, I guess because David Byrne had that album, um, Beleza Tropical, where he sort of put together a bunch of great Brazilian pop music for the American audience. And it just blew me away. So I started looking into Chico Buarque and, and uh, others. And I discovered Carlinhos Brown. And uh, yeah, this song, it sort of starts with, you know, Brazilian pop has this kind of West African rhythm with uh, sort of Latin harmonic sensibilities above it. So it starts with these Brazilian traditional uh, percussion instruments. And then, uh, then the music starts in and then there's a bell. Bong. And it's when that bell rings that I just, uh, I tear up. Vidas comuns na lente do invisível Aonde os pingos vão é por destino ao chão Quem vem retornará Me dê a mão de sapão, de sapão, de sapão, de sapão Stepping back a minute, as a philosopher, do you think philosophy can serve a social good of bringing people together? I mean, obviously, the world has seen many poisonous philosophies that have uh, driven horrible events and wars and massacres and genocides and... uh, I, I always uh, found very interesting. I was reading about how the um, the Khmer Rouge, the uh, mm. the uh, Cambodian uh, Communist Party and guerrillas that uh, you know unleashed one of the great genocides of the 20th century on their own people, were mostly graduates of French uh, schools uh, getting their masters in, in uh, political philosophy and agricultural philosophy or. or PhDs, and you know they wrote these philosophical treatises about, uh, well, you know what, cities are bad, and so 
everybody should leave the cities and go work as farmers, and then be, they'll be pure, pure spirit. And uh. somebody, you know, some French professor signed off on that. Mm, very interesting, you know, for, for that. And and then, of course, you know, 25 years later, they're they're killing three million of their own people in the name of this philosophy. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It was kind of uh, strange too that I mean, one of the first things they did was they start killing all the educated people. You could, I mean, you'd have been in trouble there because you're wearing glasses. They would have assumed if you're wearing glasses, you can read. If you can read, you're an intellectual. So, yeah, I mean, philosophy, you know, fascism is a philosophy. Nationalism is a philosophy. Uh, dangerous stuff. Um, but I think there's sort of two roles philosophy can play. Um, you know, one of my first logic classes was with Ken Kettner here at Texas Tech, uh, and I ended up TAing for him, and he had this slogan, bad logic can kill you. If you don't know how to think, you can be fooled by people and you can end up getting sent to a war that you shouldn't go to and you can get yourself killed. You can follow the wrong people. And so learning how to reason critically can, can help you resist that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's one thing. I mean, it's kind of like an immunization against bad reasoning to, to learn to do philosophy. Your final song is Janaya. Janaya, yeah. And I'm going to let you tell me about the singer who's Georgian. Now, of course, you the first time I met you, we mm -hmm. met because we have a mutual interest in uh, an interfaith dialogue group that's uh, mm -hmm. run by people of Turkish extraction. But then you told me about this amazing story uh, that you described as, as one of the best and worst decisions you ever made in your life simultaneously. <laughs> exactly. Where you and your, your wife uh, were traveling to uh, not Georgia the state in the United States, but Georgia the country in the former Soviet Republic. And you decided to fill in the blank here, Mark. Well, sort of de facto adopt. <laughs> this was not a cute little baby left in your hotel doorstep. No, this was an 18-year-old young man with uh, huge muscles and a beautiful smile and all kinds of talents. Uh, yeah, in this, in this trip, we would, uh, we'd visited several countries, and we, and we stayed in hotels most of the time. But when we got to Georgia, the locals insisted that we stay with families. And so we stayed with this Khadjishvili family. And the young man, Devi, is, uh, he was 18 years old. He just graduated from high school. And the law in Georgia at the time, probably still is the law, that when you graduate from high school, you go to university or you go to the army. And they had just finished a shooting war with Russia. So, uh, and we had become so impressed with this kid, not just his, his talents, of which there are many, but his character, uh, that we thought we cannot let this kid get drafted into the army. And his family had no means to put him into university. There are no public universities, apparently, in Georgia. Uh, we, my wife and I, and one other person that was on the trip said, you know, we know a good university. <laughs> let's, just, let's just bring him to Lubbock, and we'll just put him through tech. And so we brought him, and uh, he just graduated in May with, uh, with honors. So we're very proud. He's a, he's a great young man, and he's going he's gonna to do big things. But he taught me to appreciate, I had learned some Russian in high school, so I already, uh, I already liked some Russian music. But he taught me to appreciate Russian rap. And there's this one, this song is a song performed by a Russian rapper named Legalize. I have no idea where that comes from. Legalize. Oh. <laughs> and Dato, which is sort of the, the short name for David in Georgian. So this is a Georgian pop singer and a Russian rapper. And they alternate between rapping in Russian and singing in Georgian. And now this is one of the first songs that Devi introduced me to. And I just loved the sound of it. Rap in Russian is rappier than rap in any other language.
So, Mark, you know, there have been a lot of mo movies over the years which have had, I think, an unrealistic view of teaching. I think Mr. Holland's opus sort of summed it up for me, or maybe Dead Poet Society, where <laughs> yeah. if you are not, like, inspiring your students to greatness every day, <laughs> then you're not a good job doing a good job of teaching. And the other part about it is that at the end of your teaching career, there'll be some sort of, I, th I think the, the, the prototypical movie scene of this is, is the teacher is sort of feeling down, you know, the retirement day, and mm -hmm. he hears some noise coming from the gym, and he walks over there and opens it, and every one of his former students is there giving a rhythmic clapping of like, man, you changed my life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and now with the wonders of Facebook, I am able to keep up with my former students of my some 20 years uh, creating there. And every once in a while, you know, I'll meet the students and say, hey, you know, I, I really appreciated this or, uh, yeah, I, re I still like that book, you read that book you assigned or something like that. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's great. You know that that's all I. It I is want. a boost. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I if if somebody told me that they actually changed, I changed their life. I would be really pretty 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 skeptical. Yeah. Oh my God, but, yeah, <laughs> that but, could be horrible. <laughs> what, what what's your advice to young people coming in the profession about what, what what is the grandest ambition a teacher should have? Wow. Um, my worry is I, I see so many people dropping out of teaching yeah. or, or, or moving away from teaching into and not valuing teaching as much because I think the, the expectations are often unrealistic. Yeah. But can you talk to us about some of the joys you've had? Well, the biggest joy I have in teaching is seeing the light come on. And I think that's really what, that's what my discipline is about. So, you know, if, uh, if somebody's struggling with a concept or an argument or uh, a theory and you so see them get it suddenly it's like that's that's what i'm trying to do and it happens too rarely <laughs> uh, sometimes because the kids are you know so bright that they get it automatically and, and i'm not challenging them uh, and sometimes because they're not trying or whatever but uh, i love the kid that's struggling and gets it and you know i get these notes or letters or Facebook things every now and then, maybe one a year. That's enough to keep me going. <laughs> uh, but uh, I can remember in particular one experience I had when I was still a visiting uh, assistant professor here, and I was teaching a logic class. And it's formal logic, so it's very mathematical. And I had this one student, non-traditional student, woman, who had a learning disability and a terrible stutter. And she was doing abysmally. And she came to my office just in tears one day saying, I do not understand how to do these truth tables. Can you help me? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll do my best. And she confided in me that her husband had told her that she was too stupid to do logic. And I said, damn it, I'm mad now. I'm going to get you at least a B. <laughs> and we worked and worked. And I came up with new techniques that I had never used before. Uh, I learned in the process how to talk to someone with a stammer, which is uh, a non-trivial skill have to resist the impulse to finish their sentences for them for one thing and we worked and worked and she on her own steam got a b and i hope she came home and shoved it in her husband's face <laughs> that's the that was more work than it usually takes but that's the thing she made a, a step of progress and it was because of stuff i did and she did too of course she worked like crazy well thank you very much dr webb thank you i think that that story is probably typical of not necessarily every student, but of the attitude that you take towards students. And I think I hope so. I know your colleagues, <laughs> and I've talked to them, and I've talked to some of your former students who who feel that way. Uh, that that you 
you care a lot. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Webb. It's been a pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed this. And thank you for being a tech. Телепати, нати, здесь легалайс и готов Все на танцпол, знай, на микрофоне настоящий про Значит будет горячо, пусть музыка течет Мы не уснем до самого утра, пока темно Разливай вино, чтоб через край лилось Будто сегодня день рождения, Новый год Восточный хит звучит и всех прет Мы захватили эту дискотеку, где бы Над головой бокалы справа налево Слева направо ритм сегодня правит Мами, покажи мне самый знойный танец Давай сыграем в то, кто быстрее устанет Вращай свое все амплитуру Туда не сбавляй, мы заберем тебя туда, где не летает чартер Легалайз, да то ищите нас в чартер Католет до синия, вынес маром и цилия И маски арамбобен, а масли свищадия Туга церамо да генили, дили чем мотанили Подозлись так репили, китреби дам цванили Джан, Стильность моего куплета Ощути телом колорит жаркого лета Не бойся быть ко мне поближе, знаешь, не обижу Мне очень нравится то, что перед собой я вижу Твоя изящность, то, от чего я сгораю Двигалась на ветер, не бросает слов, ты знаешь Правда хороша, да то, смотри, какая Джанная, Джанная Джанная, Чтобы было горячо, кричим, хотим еще Над головой бокалы, чтобы было горячо, кричим, хотим еще Чтобы было горячо, кричим, хотим еще. Над головой бокалы, чтобы было горячо, кричим, хотим еще.